Okay, so this is uh, our next installment of Jewish history, and we were up to last time, uh, basically the years, you know, the turn of the first century, uh, first to second century of the Common Era, and we're talking about the temple and being destroyed, and kind of what happens as the after effects of that. Um, we kind of went all the way up to the year 136, uh, dealing with uh, Hadrian and Bar Kokhba and the rebellion and Yavne and all that. And now what we're going to do today, what I decided to do today, uh, is to fast forward basically uh, 1,800 years and tell a story, I think a, probably not so, not, you know, a story that's not, not, not very well known, um, but it's deeply personal to me and I think, uh, you know, I want to share with you guys and it's kind of an a untold chapter. It's not an untold chapter in, in Jewish history, some parts of it maybe, but it's, uh, it's a very remarkable story uh, during uh, a very traumatic time period in, in, in Jewish history. So I'm going to start um, by telling the story of my own grandfather and kind of how he survived the war, but then kind of we'll meander off to a different topic. We'll see if it's a nice handoff. Um, so my grandfather was born in, in uh, 1914. Uh, he was born in Berlin, the only child of, uh, of his parents. Uh, his father, very um, strong personality, but also very uh, kind of the model of what German Jewry looked like at the beginning of the of, of the nineteenth of the twentieth century. You know, Germany was the most assimilated out of all the places. You know, and you know, even on the scale of Western Europe, with you know, with France, you know, Germany and Berlin was kind of the epitome of 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 the assimilated Jew. We don't have, the, the kind of Jew that existed then is, almost doesn't exist now uh, at all. Um, you have today, you have Jews that are just not interested, unaffiliated Jews, and you have Jews that are, you know, they're interested. They're Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, whatever, you know, but they're not, uh, they're not, not taking stances uh, uh, against, for or against any, any ideology. As opposed to in, in Germany and France and different parts of the United States as well, at that time, uh, the, the attitude was there were some traditional Jews and then there was the new Jew, the assimilated Jew. And, you know, that's why they have some of the synagogues in France in the 19th century that they looked no different than churches. Nothing. You couldn't tell the difference. Um, you walked in and it looked like a church. And the rabbis were like priests. And the services were on Sundays. Like, that's, that, that's an example because they wanted to assimilate. Um, so that's the kind of environment in the Jewish community that my grandfather was born into. Uh, he, his, so his father was a very accomplished, um, very, uh, very, very, edu- very educated, very in- intelligent, kind of like high society in, in uh, the intelli- intelligentsia in, in, in Berlin. He, uh, he was a professor. He spoke 12 languages. Of course he did. He taught French and English. Uh, but he, I, I looked him up last night to get the details. It's just this is he, he was an author, prolific author. Uh, he wrote a, a book called "The History of the Jews in Berlin and in Brandenburg." I don't know what that is, but uh, he, you know he was a historian and he was uh, an autograph collector. He was he was way ahead of his times. He wrote books about autograph collecting. He collected an enormous, enormous, like a fortune worth of uh, of. Uh, of autographs and just memorabilia from like the kings and the princes of, of Bavaria and, 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 and Germany. And he was, you know, just very interesting personality. He wrote, um, I have just a, a partial list of some of the biographies that he wrote. 
a fellow by the name of Berthold Orbach, who's a German Jewish poet. Uh, the Empress Augusta, I don't know who that is. I'm sure we look around. Look, look around. Look, these, all these people have Wikipedia pages. Ludwig August Frankel. Um, Moses Montefiore, he's the only one that we probably know. Field Marshal Prince Leopold of Bavaria. And someone by the name of Carmen Silva. Plus 10 or 15 other books. You know, all these books are impossible to find now. I try to find them now. Uh, in, in fact, in 1933 because uh, he was Jewish, despite the fact that he was kind of, you know, part of general Ger- Ger- German society, he was kicked out of his job uh, because he was a professor and he was Jewish. You know, he liked Einstein. Einstein, you know, Einstein was Jewish, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't practice Jew. I mean, he didn't even went to shul. Probably never went to shul in his life. Uh, he was, you know, he was a German Jew of the early 20th century. And he also was kicked out of his job. So he came to America. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my great-grandfather didn't, you know, but he used to take his job. In fact, in his school in, in Germany, there is a, they put up like a big memorial to him in 2003, you know, kind of talking about his life and kind of the, what happened uh, when Hitler rose to power and all Jews that were in positions of, of authority and, and teachers, etc., were were fired. Um, now, so that's, that, that, you know, he, that was his dad. My grandfather from day one wanted to learn Torah. I wanted to uh, become a rabbi. From day one, he wanted to become a rabbi. You know? And his mother encouraged it. His father says, nah, I don't know, become a rabbi. I don't know, maybe not, you know. So uh, he tells stories that his, his mother, when his, when he, you know, his mother told him a story that when, he, when she brought him to shul, the first time, he kissed her hands. He was so excited. And he would give like on, on you know, Saturday afternoons or, Friday nights in shul, he would give speeches to his friends. You know, he would like assemble his friends and start giving them like some, you know, some speech about, about Judaism, about Torah. You know, from day one, um, he managed to convince his parents to transfer him to the, you know, to the more uh, traditional Jewish school at the age of seven. You know, so he transferred from the more liberal, you know, you know, that had religion, but religion, you know, kind of wore down to like the, you know, the, the, you know, the more traditional uh, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish school. So his, uh, his father met a fellow by the name of Rabbi Cohen. Very interesting story. Um, there was a rabbi in town and he happened to have degrees in French and English. Mm-hmm. In French and English. So my, my great grandfather and him met. And they kind of had a, a, you know, a bond and they had a sort of like a, a, you know, an affinity for each other because they shared the same, well, there's not the same vocation, but they had the same education. So, and he was the head of the traditional school. Thus, my my great grandfather felt comfortable sending his son to that school, you know, to learn a little bit more because he was friendly with the dean, Rabbi Cohen. Um... So you know, that, that's the basic that's the big story of, of of his childhood. Just some some scant details, you know, like he uh, he would go uh, to study on the weekends. By like Rabbi Cohen would have a group of students. He would bring them into his, into his you know into his into his into his shul, and he would teach them Mishnah and would teach them a little bit of halacha. And he said every time his mother dropped him off at school, like every time she would just she would start crying. He said his mother was such a special lady. In fact, like uh, he many, many years later, when he's in Israel, he's writing these amazing books that are literally like generational uh, masterpieces. Uh, he writes in the beginning. This is all because you know the merit of his, of his mother, who uh, later on, uh, you know, unfortunately she uh, she was uh, killed in the Holocaust in uh, in 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 Riga in Latvia. 
So uh, after after high school, he went to uh, the rabbinical school in Frankfurt. Uh, he, was, so he was he was kind of bouncing from yeshiva, he went for, he went to yeshiva in Frankfurt. Uh, he ended up in yeshiva in 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 Montreux in uh, in Switzerland. He says that Switzerland's a nice. He says this place is the nicest place in the world. In fact, I found in one of his later books. This is a book that he had intended to publish only posthumously. Uh, this is a book of my grandfather that he wrote on. It's called Hamitzvot Tashkulot, which means the mitzvahs that are equal. What mean the mitzvahs that are equal? So he, he assembled, he collected from all the corners of the Talmud and the Midrash the seven, to- seven times that the Talmud says that there's a mitzvah which is equal to all the other mitzvahs combined. Seven mitzvahs like that. And obviously we know, when we studied the first word of Talmud, there's no such thing as a coincidence, you know, like it's, it's all measured. So he said, wait a minute, there must be some pattern here between these mitzvahs. Why are these specific mitzvahs, these seven, considered to be so essential, so crucial that they're considered, that they're equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined? So he wrote uh, basically two uh, theses on, on that issue and he published them. And, you know, it kind of incorporates all of his Torah into this very thin volume. Um, but in it, I found, and I actually looked for it last night, I found it no problem, uh, where he writes as follows. I'll quote it to you. A story with a young person whose heart was awake for true faith. He felt about himself, it's clear. And he came to learn in a yeshiva that was in one of the most beautiful places in the world. He's referring to his time in, in Switzerland. Uh, and he saw the beautiful, uh, just the view he, he, he got so excited. He said, you know what? This is a place where I could really appreciate the beauty of the Almighty. Look what the Almighty did. He says, I, I, I googled pictures of this place. It's absolutely stunning. It's just incredible. And, but, but then it continues. Um, here he writes about himself. But then after the time that he was there, he realized that not only did his faith not get strengthened, but rather it got weakened. Why? And he says, only 50 years later did he realize. So 50 years later, we're talking about when he was 70, you know, 75 years old. He remembers that indeed the work, the handiwork of the Almighty is beautiful. But instead of taking all the beauty in the world and using that as a tool to develop a faith in the Almighty, he, you know, stopped one station too early. He's like, whoa, what a beautiful world. And he didn't take that last step of attri- you know, attributing that to the Almighty. So instead of deepening his bond with the Almighty, he deepened his bond with the world, with the physical world, which is the antithesis of the Almighty, of the spiritual world. You know, so that's a kind of a, a you know, little anecdote that I found from his time in, in, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in Switzerland. But in there, he met someone who changed his life. Uh, there was a, a fellow who was like a traveling yeshiva student who was a veteran of, of some of the great yeshivas in, in Lithuania and Poland. And this guy settled down in this yeshiva for a couple... He, he must have been an older fellow, older relative, obviously, but older, and he kind of was disenchanted with his yeshiva, so he had transferred, and he wanted to get maybe a, you know, a fresh start in life. So... That's, that's one person that, that showed up there. Another person that showed up there was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Bodnik who came and delivered two Musser speeches. And we know about Musser. Musser is about self-improvement and character development and ethical refinement. So this guy came in there and gave a schmooze. What's a schmooze? A schmooze in English. It's like, it's like, 
Right, but this is a serious talk. And my grandfather was shell-shocked. In his life, he had never heard such words, such piercing words of, uh, you know, of, of, of Musser. So he, 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 he said it changed his life. And he, he, he got so excited, he went to his friend um, and he said to him, let, let, let's review the, the speech. And he reviewed the speech. And then the guy gave another speech, Rabbi Bodnik. And he's like, he, he freaked out. And so, so he told, um, so this fellow told him, by the way, you should know, if you really love these speeches so much, you should go to Mir. You should go to Mir. What's Mir? Mir is a little town in Poland. Right now it's in Belarus. Just that these, these, you know, the neighborhoods change every half hour in Europe. Um, right now it's in, it's in a town in Belarus, which is it's kind of uh, eastern Poland, kind of like southeastern Poland. So um, he says, you should go to Mir. What's in Mir? In Mir there's the famed Rabbi Yerucham who gives the best Muslim speeches ever. And if you like this, you'll just go insane. He says, there's no greater pleasure in the world than to hear, than to hear uh, Rabbi Rucham give a speech. And then my grandfather writes in his, auto, in his autobiographical account that I had to siphon off my father and copy uh, furtively, clandestinely in Staples. And then I bound and I hid and I brought with me back to Houston. I found that he writes in brackets. And in the end, I found that it was true. There's no greater pleasure than hearing Rabbi Rucham give a speech. But to tell some German boy, German rabbinical student, that you're going to leave Switzerland, which is right next to Germany, and go to Poland, backward Poland. It's like, you know, it's like sending someone to Nicaragua, you know. You know I want you to go to Nicaragua and just go live in a tent, you know, without any running water. Like, that, that, that was the equivalent. And his parents would never, 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 ever approve of him going to the mirror. Never. But the guy said, you know, just go. Just go. Send your parents a letter. Send your parents a letter. And, and hear what they say. Tell me a letter you want to go to, to Mir Yeshiva in Poland. So he said, what, what, you know, what are you going to do? And he said, okay, fine. You know, we, he wrote his parents. I'll send him. And they'll say for sure, say no. There's no university there. There's no, there's no hope for, for, for education. It's Poland. No way. He sent them a letter anyhow. They were, me at that time, traveling. His parents were traveling. This is, we're talking about the year 1934 or 33. At the end of 33, beginning of 34. He writes his parents a letter, and lo and behold, he gets the letter back. Go to me or go to Poland. And he couldn't believe it. He was shocked. But he picked his bags up and packed off to Poland and went to the mirror, which is basically the, the, the mirror yeshiva and the story about that yeshiva is the topic of what I wanted to talk about today. Later on, his mother told him. Listen to the story, guys. This is, no, listen to this. <laughs> He knew his father. He knew his father very well. He knew his father would never let him go to Poland in a place where there's no university, there's no hope for getting uh, any sort of uh, education. Kind of, you know, this is a man probably with you know with degrees to the wazoo. You know, and to him, his son isn't going to go to this Poland. His parents, his father, had a um, fellow in Germany that he used to go visit with him. It seems like it was a fortune teller, some guy with the sixth sixth sense, and. He, he went to him and he said, I'm about to travel to Italy, I'm going to Rome. What's going to be? You know, give, me some, you know, give me some insight. So the guy tells him, you should know that when you're on your trip to, to Italy, your son's going to send you a letter with a strange request. You should grant him that request. It's for his best interest. That's what, he, that's what the fortune told, told him. Here it is, my grandfather heard from his mother. And then they're in Italy and they get a letter, we go to, go to Poland. So then he takes the letter and shows it to his, to, to his wife. He says, oh, there's the letter. The letter came. So he, he, Against his better judgment, he said, go to Poland. This is the only reason why I'm around today, by the way. If he, 
had decided to not, I wouldn't be here. You know, this is which will be a pattern, by the way, throughout the, the, the course of our of our, uh, of our talk today. So I picked up his badge and went to me in 1934. Um, remember, this is already at a time where uh, the Nuremberg Lords are on the corner. It's not a place for him. Like he was considered going back to Berlin. And one of the worst decisions you could possibly ever make is to go to, back to Berlin uh, in 19. Uh, Thirty-four, much much less than nineteen thirty-eight, which we, you know will will re uh, uh, will will um, kind of uh, retrace uh, the story again, where he's going to be uh, placed between a rock and a hard place in nineteen thirty-eight as well. But when he wrote when he wrote writes this in his in his little diary that I found clandestinely, he says he points out, listen, you know, like how many different things had to happen for me to end up where I am. You know, I had to end up in in Switzerland. How I ended up there is also a story, you know, this fellow Rabbi Cohen came, this other guy came to give speeches, the fortune teller, all of this had to happen. Any one of those links were missing, he wouldn't have ended up in the mirror. He arrives in the mirror, the mirror is, till this day, the international yeshiva. It was founded 200 years from the year, from, from now, 20 years ago. The year 1815 it was founded. So it's, it's, the, it's the longest um, uh, continually, uh, I guess, um, uh, currently active yeshiva, you know, the, the you know has been around for a lot of We'll get to what happened. It's incredible. <laughs> Today, there's about six to seven thousand students in the yeshiva in Israel, and they have other branches as well. We'll get to all the details in a second. Founded in Mir in Poland in 1815, and we reestablished in Israel after the war. But we'll talk about the, what happened to, during the war because this yeshiva was the only yeshiva that continued. Uninterrupted throughout the entire war. That's really one. That's the really content of this, this discussion. It was the only one out of the hundreds of yeshivas that existed uh, that existed in um, in Europe. This was the only one that remained intact as a group and survived the war together, and didn't you know didn't didn't, didn't take a day off. And how that happened, it's just it, it's just crazy. But what you know, what was the mere likes? So I, I think. Give a few anecdotes here. What, what what was it like? This was this is the Harvard Harvard of the issue. What does the Harvard of the issue award look like? Look at what he says. Says when you walked in, you saw four hundred students, and they're all studying. And if you were walk up and down the aisles, just up and down the aisle between the students, no one would lift their head. No one, no one would lift their head. They, they, they didn't matter. Nothing. No one would lift their head. Doesn't. Oh, who's going on? Just they were there four, five, six hours straight studying nonstop. Studying nonstop, you know, there, there are even uh, anecdotes of people studying with someone and not even knowing their names, you know, because because all you did was study. All you did was 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 you know, dive you know, dive into the depths of the Talmud. That's all you did. You didn't sit and schmooze. Hey, where you from? How you doing? You would just study. That's all you. That's all you would do. Just tremendous, just tenacity that they had in this yeshiva. Um, Grandma tells a story that um, he was once uh, studying with his with his chavrusa and. And someone started running through the through the hall, the study hall. So the guy closed his Gemara. And says there's a fire. There's a fire. Why? Because in the town of Mir, the small little town of Poland, who you know they didn't have their own fire, fire firefighters. The yeshiva boys, they were they were young, able bodied men, and they were the firefighters. And they knew that no one would ever run in the, in the base matters. No one would ever run in the study hall. If someone ran, it must be that there's a fire. There's no other reason why. He wasn't streaming fire, fire. They just saw someone running. Someone calls the Gemara. It must be there's a fire. There's no other reason why someone would run there. It's, it's you know, <laughs> you 
you see someone running? There's a fire. They all picked up the clothes of the Gemara, went to, you know, to extinguish the fire, and went back. It's a nice little uh, story. Another story here is that, um, which is, digs in a little bit in kind of the Musa philosophy. Um, he, there were two kinds of lectures in, 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 in every yeshiva. To this day, there's two kinds of lectures. There's a Talmud lecture, and then there's a, uh, a Musa lecture. You know, Musa is more about perfecting yourself, and Talmud is more studying text, you know, studying the, you know, the, you know, the wonderful oceans of Talmud. So my grandfather had the option, or he, he, he really only had the option to write down, to, to record, to, uh, to commit to paper one of those speeches, either the, the Talmud speeches or the, or the, um, or the, or the Musr speeches. So which one were you going to do? So what, what, is, what does a Musr person do? What's the Musr attitude of making, of making such a, uh, a decision? Which one do you want to do more? And then do the opposite. Right. That's what Musr is all. It's all about self denial to embolden yourself. You know, like we t- we told the story a few times about Rabbi Israel Salanter and the cigarette. You know, well, what should I walk and get the cigarette or or not? Either way, I'm I'm giving into something. You know, you're supposed to. If you do against what you want, so to speak, then you empower yourself. So he said, I I want to write down the Musr lectures instead. I'm going to write down the Talmud lectures. A little insight into the. Uh, into, you know, in, into the way the, the attitude that, that that prevailed. So you remained there for four years. It became a different person. Like you know, uh, even though halfway through that uh, that period, Rabbi Rucham died, the great uh, Musar master. Um, he didn't um, he didn't cease delving into his works, uh, and he was someone. He was such a uh, an important figure in his life that. Uh, that uh, you know, till his dying day, he was he was kind of existing and living in his presence, so to speak. In 1937, my grandfather had an idea to open up a yeshiva in Copenhagen, in Denmark, uh, with his friend. So um, their plan was let, let, let's let you know those days. He, he wanted to let his wings kind of fly. He was 20, 23, 24 years old. A tremendous, tremendous genius. Uh, some incredible capabilities, as is demonstrated by his uh, later achievements. Um, and he wanted a, you know, he wanted to open yeshiva in Copenhagen. That was his idea. Even though Copenhagen was a relatively small Jewish community, that's where he, you know, he thought he would have maximum impact. They sent a letter to the rabbi Jacobson, who was the chief rabbi of, of Copenhagen, and said, listen, we, you know, him and his friend, we want to open yeshiva. Can we meet? Can we meet? He said, "Sure, I'm, I'm actually traveling. I'll be in Mir in in uh, in in the in the um, in the summer. A few weeks before they're supposed to meet, he sent him a letter. By the way, I'm not going to be in Mir. I'm going to be in a different city. So eventually, they met him in a different city. No one knew about this meeting. There's only one person who knew about that. So he had a meeting with uh, Rabbi with the chief rabbi of Copenhagen, and they and they decided to you know to plan this yeshiva in Copenhagen." Only one person knew about that uh, that meeting. The only one person that was not part of that meeting. And then he says, "It's a fellow by the name of Zev Guthold. I know the, the details, all everyone's names here." Now, this fellow Zev Guthold was from Hamburg. He traveled and he ended up in Stockholm, and he happened to spend Shabbos right, in Stockholm the same week that the chief rabbi of Copenhagen was in Stockholm. So, at the same table, same Shabbos table, you have. The one guy in the mirror that happened to have known about my grandfather's plans of opening yeshiva in Copenhagen, 
and the chief rabbi of Copenhagen. So they both knew. They both knew everything that happened. And they're sitting by someone's house. Uh, one of the, one of the few uh, religious Jews in, in 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 Stockholm in Sweden, whose name was Lehman. And as they're sitting here, he has a uh, the rabbi of Copenhagen, a yeshiva student from the Mir. And the fellow Lehman tells tells them, "Listen, I want I have a son here. That's my young son Eric, and he's." He has no Jewish education. Do you know of someone that maybe we could bring here to teach him? So both of them said, what about, what about Wolby? What about Wolby? Maybe he's the right guy, you know? Because they knew, they had this, they both knew that he they was looking for something. They said, yeah, it's probably not going to work out in Copenhagen. That, that, that might not work out. If that doesn't work out, let him, uh, let him come here and he'll be in Stockholm. That was the idea. So they sent my grandfather a letter. You have a job here. Come, you'll be a teacher in, in Stockholm. And you'll teach, you'll tutor this boy, and you can open up whatever you want to do, you could do over here. Concurrently, so you get this idea, who wants to go to Stockholm and teach, you know, tutor someone, or Stockholm was, was, was Sweden was, was bereft of almost any semblance of Judaism. It was, it was empty. There was nothing going on there. Even less than Copenhagen. What are you going to do? You have this offer? Okay, so let's let, he put it on hold. Anyhow, it's 1938 here, so he ends up in, in Germany. He went to visit his mother. He left, the, he left Poland, went to Germany, went to Berlin, visited his mother. He tries to go back and say, oh, you're a German national. It's 1938. We're not giving you a visa. We're not giving you a visa. Why? Because, it's, you know, Germany, you know, Hitler was inciting all the, you know, the, all the, uh, it was warmongering. They said, you're a German, we're not letting you in. Did everything they can, try to get a visa, couldn't get a visa. Finally, got a, a three-month three uh, uh, visa. And after three months, they said he couldn't, couldn't, couldn't renew his visa, and he was literally stuck. You know, he was in Poland. They said, you have to leave Poland because your visa expires. And he had no place to go. Where's he going to go? So he tried to get a visa. They tried everything, like literally. They tried Herculean efforts were made to try to get him a visa to go into Lithuania, neighboring Lithuania, to go to Yeshiva there. He was planning, he ended up in Riga, bouncing around from place to place. Eventually he said, you know what, I'll just take this job in Stockholm. And even though at the time he's like, I have the opportunity to go to this great Yeshiva in Lithuania, I'll go to Stockholm, what am I going to do in Stockholm? The Almighty was running the show. It's very clear in, in, uh, in hindsight, because during his eight years that he spent in Sweden, obviously he was safe from the war that erupted in, in Europe, but also he managed to, uh, to save, literally save, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of, of, of Jews uh, from the gas chambers. And we'll get to the details of that story as well. So uh, in 19, the spring of 1938, um, he had already received his rabbinic ordination. He is 24 years old. He doesn't have a visa. He's German. He is ap- absolutely not going back to Berlin. He makes his way to Stockholm, where he's going to settle down for uh, for eight years. It, it turns out. Let's move this discussion a little bit and kind of talk about someone else, a uh, different figure. Uh, that is Chaya, my wife's grandfather. His name is uh, Aaron Florence. Chaya is a name Florence. So we talked about my father's father. Now we're talking about my wife's father's father. He uh, he grew up in a town uh, in 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 Belarus, also right near that, called Baranovich, and he is one of the very 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 few survivors of of that town. 
it was a you know it was a city basically that was ping-ponging back between control of the Russians or the Soviets and Poland. Uh, of the Jews of the town, less than two percent survive the war. Chai um, is my great my grandfather-in-law was one of ten children. He had one sister that left to Palestine in 1936, so she survived, but the rest of them were all slaughtered. His parents, his, everyone he knew in town, they were all, they were all killed. So he, had, he had eight siblings that were killed, plus his parents, plus probably everyone he knew. Uh, less than 2% survived. He, in 1938, he also went to the very same yeshiva. He was, uh, uh, he's uh, five years younger than my grandfather, so he was about 19 years old. Uh, and in 1938, he made his way to this Mir Yeshiva. This decision that he made to join the Yeshiva saved his life, as, as, as we'll see. Now, very quickly, or very soon after he arrived, the war started. Remember, the war started in 1939. But before the war started, uh, the famous or infamous uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact, the Non-Aggression Pact, was signed. Um, that decision basically sealed the fate of, of all of Polish Jewry, all three million people that were slaughtered of Poland. Uh, that basically gave Hitler the Eastern Bloc was he you know uncontested. Uh, it was an agreement between the the enemies, uh, Russia and and Germany, uh, that they agreed that you know well, let's take Poland and let's split it halfway down the middle. The, Germ- the Germans will take the eastern half. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the western half. Right? So this is this is Germany. This is Russia. Poland's right in the middle. Let's put Poland down the middle. We'll take the western half. You guys take the eastern half. That was the agreement, basically, and that's what happened. It was September first, nineteen thirty nine. The uh, Germans just rolled in to Poland on one side. The Soviets came on the other side, and Poland very, very swiftly. Uh, was 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 uh, was was parceled up into these two uh, uh, mega mega uh, powers. Now, uh, in September, in September seventeenth, the town of Mir, with the yeshiva of Mir, with Chaya's grandfather, came under Soviet control. So this is, you know, a very good thing that actually happened. All things being equal. Well, this maybe is, maybe, maybe is debatable, but all things being equal, you'd probably rather be under Soviet control than under German control. Either one's miserable. Uh, you know, the, the, um, to have you try to operate yeshiva in, in Soviet Russia, it's not, they won't let you do that. You know, they don't believe in religion. You know, they don't believe in any of that. Uh, so the continued existence of the yeshiva under, Soviet, under the Soviets was, you know, was, was, not, was an impossibility. Uh, of course, if you were under the Germans, then you had much more to worry about, as we all know. So September 17th, the Tatamir comes under Soviet rule. And in early 19th, uh, October, so a few weeks later, one of the yeshiva students has a radio. And he's, and remember, the Mir is an international yeshiva. So there's Americans, and my grandfather was German, even though a lot of Polish students, but students from everywhere. And this guy's the radio, and he hears on the radio a broadcast from England. And the broadcast from England says, that the town of Vilna, another town, is going to be given to Lithuania. And therefore, the town of Vilna could potentially be a place that they could run to. The idea being that part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the non-aggression, Soviet-German non-aggression 
treaty was that they were going to take the town of Vilna. Vilna, by the way, uh, was a town that uh, was, a, was a city that was, uh, was fought over between the Poles and the Lithuanians. You know, in, in, uh, when, when Lithuania and Poland were both founded at the end of World War I, uh, the town of Vilna was given to the, uh, to the Lithuanians. And that was their capital. Um, a year later, the Poles marched in and captured it. So therefore, the town of Poland, the town of Lithuania, the, the city of Poland, the country of Poland, the country of Lithuania, they broke off all diplomatic ties. They had, even though they were neighbors, they're right next to each other, they had, not, they had no relationship with each other, which is to be crucial because in Lithuania, there's not going to be any embassies or any councils or anything like that. None of that of uh, Polish councils and vice versa. So um, the town of Vilna, according to this Ribbentrop, Malta Ribbentrop pact, is going to be given to the Lithuanians that they're going to remain independent. So you basically have an option. You're right now in Mir. You're only a few uh, miles, I don't know, by tens of miles, but not very far from Vilna. Maybe if you make your way to Vilna, you're able to escape the Soviets and you could continue existing. And Vilna's right now, it's neutral. It's not going to remain neutral very long. But it's neutral. Maybe this is the place to go. The entire yeshiva, faculty and students, right, they managed to get passports. They got Polish passports. Which, by the way, was a problem because in order to travel, you need a passport. And as of the t- October 1939, the country of Poland doesn't exist. Right? Half of it's belonged to the Russians, half belonged to the Germans. How they get to, how they actually get passports? The way they got passports was that the the Polish government established a they established a government in exile in England. Uh, and therefore, they were able to establish a temporary consulate and issue passports. The whole story how they ended up with the passports. Eventually, all the 400 students of, of the Mir Yeshiva managed to get secure passport, Polish passport, and make their way into, in, into, into Vilna. Now, the Mir Yeshiva was not the only Yeshiva that ended up in, in Vilna. Many, many other Yeshivas also flocked to Vilna. So you have this little town in Lithuania, right now it's part of the independent Lithuania, that has swelled. Uh, we know we have the details, the numbers of, of all the different yeshivas, but about 2,500 different yeshiva students from all across Poland and that whole region, they all went to, uh, to, to, to Vilna. But not only that, lots of other refugees, you know, lots of other people living under, uh, under, under Soviet uh, Poland, Polish control, they, made, they also wanted to save their skin and they made their way to, to Vilna as well. So for this brief period of time, this one city in Vilna, this one city in Lithuania, just just swelled with all these yeshiva students and Jewish and Jewish uh, refugees. Now, um, eventually, the authorities in Lithuania they couldn't handle such overcrowding in this little town. They sent them to different places. So sent them to uh, a city called uh, Kedin, further east, which is further deeper towards Russia. Uh, eventually, the um, Eventually, the group, uh, the yeshiva that we're following, the Mir Yeshiva split into four different groups, and the yeshiva kind of coexisted uh, in four different neighboring cities. So four cities where all the yeshiva students, because they couldn't fit them all in one city, as refugees, they put them in four different cities. Fine. So they're alive. They're well. The war is raging in, in Poland, and Hitler's moved on to other places already. Right now, they're sort of safe. They're in Lithuania. Uh, they're in Lithuania, and Lithuania is independent. Uh, and 
everything's fine, or at least for the moment. What happened was that the Soviet control of Lithuania tightened. Uh, and and then uh, and then they demanded new new governments, uh, and they um, they demanded new governments, and they uh, eventually what happened was that uh, only a few months after it was granted Vilna, the city of Lithuania became the sixteenth uh, the sixteenth state in the USSR, in the United Soviet Socialist Republic. So there was this small brief period in time where Lithuania was an independent country and a lot of Jews ended up there, but everyone saw that the noose was swiftly tightening. Now, what happened, how, how are they going to get out of this, right? We're, we're, we're stuck in a corner. What happened was that after, after Lithuania was, um, after Lithuania was admitted, or admitted, was schlepped in against their will to the Soviet Republic, all the Consulates and all the embassies that were in in part of those uh, in the Baltic states in 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 Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, they all moved to Moscow. Obviously, because it's part of Russia now, so they all moved to Moscow. But you have a few months in time where the um, there were some foreign governments that existed uh, or that had their embassies in uh, in. In uh, uh, in in those places in Lithuania, so uh, what happens now is just it, it's just insane. Like so many different parts have to have to go right that all exactly did, and that and that contributed to this wonderful uh, story. You could call it wonderful, but this miraculous story of 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 survival. Now, in order to travel at that time, you have to have at least three things. You need to have a passport. Obviously, if you don't have a passport, you don't have any ID. Those are your papers. Uh, you had to have a visa to the country of your destination. So if you wanted to go, I don't know, to the United States, you need a visa. Problem is the United States wasn't, wasn't giving you any visas. Nothing. You couldn't get any visas, uh, which is uh, one of the most, a very, very shameful time um, for Jews. And, you know, in the, uh, um, in the, you know, the, you know, while 6 million died, the, the United States didn't exactly extend their arm out to accept the refugees. Uh, Palestine. Was it also a very uh, a place that people wanted to go? Obviously, it was under the British mandate, and they also sealed their doors um, to uh, to any immigra- any immigration. That's the white paper. That's the white paper. That's right. Um, now, besides for that, you also needed a transit visa. This 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 whole thing. I, can't, I did so much research on this. It wasn't clear to me because there's so many visas being talked about. I'm doing the research. Like it's so many different visas. You need to have one visa for where you're going. Another visa for every place that you're stopping along the way. So if you're going to Australia from Lithuania, you gotta have a USSR visa. You might have to have a, a Korean visa. You might have to any any place along the way. You're gonna need to have a visa, or else you can't go on the first train. So, um, so, and they now they had passports. If you remember, they got passports in order to get to to uh, uh, to Vilna, but now they had no they had no visas. Uh, they had no visa destination visas nor transit visas. So there are the story of these two wonderful, wonderful people that uh, really contributed to saving thousands upon thousands and thousands of Jews. One of them is a um, the Dutch ambassador. He's a fellow who worked for the Philip uh, Phillips Company. He was like a he was a businessman who happened to be in town, uh, who for a few months was appointed to be ambassador. Uh, his name was Jan. 
Zwartindig, something like that. Um, now he was a fellow who um, who didn't have much of a care for the protocol and wanted to save as many people as he can. So he was. He decided. Well, first there was a Dutch. The way it started off, there was one Dutch student who said, "Listen, I'm, I have a Dutch passport. I need a visa to get out of here." So the guy, the guy gave him one visa to Curacao. Where's Curacao? Curacao is in the West Indies, in, in Dutch Caribbean, right? Uh, which is the, literally the under, other end of the world, right? It's, it's like it's an is an island north of Venezuela, Curacao. Um, so he, this one yeshiva student said, "Okay, the the the, the Dutch ambassador said, you know what? I'll give you a stamp because you're you're Dutch. I'll give you a stamp to entry visa to um." To, to Curacao. The guy walked back to his yeshiva and said, look what I got. I got a Curacao visa. Right? Remember, it's still useless because you don't have a, a transit visa. We'll get to how they got transit visas. But, and everyone's a free talent. We all have visas. We have 300, uh, 400 students all with visas. The next day, the guy woke up and there were line, hundreds of people out his door said, you give us visas. And this guy, and these all, all had to be handwritten. And in fact, he had to do a little bit of um, uh chicanery to get around some of the problems because he had to write on them each one of them had to be individually written no visas required and he had to cross out certain parts and had to give official stamps this guy was working day and night in fact there's this episode there's a story that some guy was just there and like there's such a long line he climbed up the piping along the side of the building came through the window and the guy's like give me a visa and the guy said okay sure he wrote another visa he just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote visas uh, the estimates are we're talking about thousands, uh, thousands of different visas here or so. Now, remember, these visas are totally useless, totally useless, because you have to go through the USSR, you have to get a USSR transit visa, and where they ended up, end, ended up going was through Japan. You have to get a Jap- Japanese visa. But remember, there, uh, there's no, where's the consul? Who, who's Japanese in town to give me a Japanese visa? We'll get to that in a second. This one Dutch student, by the way, he found, his name is, um, I have it written down here somewhere. Uh, maybe I don't have it written down. Goodworth, I think his name was. He saw an Oriental person. And he said to him, are you like, who are you? The guy, it turns out that that guy uh, was the, his name is Chiyun Sudihara. Sudihara. Uh, and uh, he happened to have been the Japanese consul who was stationed in Lithuania. And he said to him, look, I have this visa. I just don't have a transit visa. So he says, so he started writing about this lengthy Japanese, his transit visa, and he could get to Japan. Now, once you had the Kiraso entry visa plus the Japanese transit visa, the Soviets would give you a visa, a transit visa, no problem. Uh, the, uh, uh, now it seems clear that the reason why the Soviets did it because they wanted this flood of refugees, so they extended their spies. You know, that if you have all these refugees going, then it's, it's indistinguishable who's a spy and who's not. Uh, so there were you know, these floods of refugees. They figured we'll give as many. If someone has a transit visa for someplace other than the USSR, we'll give them a USSR transit visa as well. Now, um, so this guy managed to do it. So what happened, uh, what happened was that from, you know, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people, they went to this guy, Jan Zwartendig, and he just wrote them. He made up these visas. He said no visas required. He gave him a stamp. They would run across the street and across the other end of the town, and they would get uh, they would get uh, their their transit visas to Japan. Now this guy, we have uh, just the stories about him. It's 
incredible. Like he was working uh, 18 to 20 hours a day, just writing visas day and night. You know, uh, him, the story goes is that he was actually packing up his bags. He's packing up his bags and says he was leaving because the consul was being relocated. And the guy, the, one of the people came to him and started pleading with him, like, you're our only hope. We're, we're toast. And we know, we know that there would have been toast otherwise. And he agreed and they just were writing. And also, uh, we know there was an underground as well. There were visas being printed in like these basements, whatever. But remember, your visa is only as good as your passport. A lot of people didn't have passports. Those people were, were in much oh, worse shape. Yeah, there were Polish passports. Polish passports with, uh, with um, Curacao destination visas, with Japanese transit visas, with Soviet transit visas. That's the, uh, uh, that, that's, that's the, so this is repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. All the mere students, they all had their passports, and they eventually, the entire yeshiva, managed to get this nice combination of having a, uh, having a Curacao visa plus... Uh, plus, uh, plus these other other transits. Now, um, in the we you know in, in eighteen uh, nineteen eighty six, he was this guy was honored. You read his whole Wikipedia page; he was honored. Just the amount of dedication this guy had to uh, to help these Jews is just remarkable. Uh, these I two people. Reading one time, this was many years ago. There were a lot of Jews who immigrated to Japan. Yeah, we'll get to the stories. Yes. And China as well. Well, it was well, China, but China was occupied by Japan as well, which which is going to add another wrinkle to the discussion because Japan was at war uh, with the United States, and the American bombers bombing the place senseless all the time. We'll get to the details of the story here. Now, this guy, like, he didn't care. Uh, this guy, uh, Sugihara, he didn't care. Like, if you had a, if you had a good passport, a valid passport, he had some things that you're three-year-old scribbled on a piece of paper. He was giving, and, you know, we have, this legend has it that there were trains that were leaving, and he was, like, like writing and just throwing them onto the plane. Just, just you know, uh, the, the Simon Wiesenthal Foundation uh, Center has estimated that Chiyun Sidihara issued transit visas for about 6,000 Jews, uh, and around 40,000 descendants of the Jewish refugees are alive today because of his actions. And my wife is one of them, and my kids are also ones of them. Pretty remarkable. He's an art a number of years ago about him. He said that when he got back to Japan, they made him pay for that. Yeah, he, he, he had a hard time. Yeah, he had a hard time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he had a hard time. Now, um, let's, I want to go back to my grandfather now. He's in, he's in Sweden. Uh, he established a Vat Hatsala. Vat Hatsala means like an organization for save, saving. You know, he had, he, of course, he, had, he was teaching. He had a shul as well. He opened the shul, but he also was the uh, representative of the American efforts to try to save as many Jews as possible. Now, after uh, Lithuania was admitted to the uh, to the um, uh, to the Soviet Union, so this guy, the Japanese guy, packed his bags. He left. The Dutch guy also packed his bags and left. Now there were many, many yeshiva students that didn't have passports, so they didn't have the ability. To even implement implement this wonderful workaround to get the the, the visas and all the different visas that were needed. Um, one day, I have I have a docu- I have a whole article here, amazing article here, written by someone who uh, is a recipient of, of, of what ha- of what happened. So he said that one day they just uh, they opened uh, they just op- got a letter in the mail with just hundreds and hundreds of of Polish uh, of Polish passports. The uh, the Polish embassy in the Polish embassy in in Bern in Switzerland. The details are all here. The Polish embassy in Switzerland 
had uh, just uh, someone negotiated and got, got, got them passports. But the problem is they had the, they had the Polish passports, but the, the, the visa guy was out of town. He had left. Uh, Jan, his name was, I want to say his name because he's a special merit. Zwartindik. He had left, and the other guy had left as well, Sugihara. So they had now the first step that they needed, but they didn't have, they didn't have the rest of it. What actually happened, this is what's remarkable, my grandfather in, in Sweden, uh, he managed to get hundreds of visas for the rest of the yeshiva students from the local Dutch consul in Stockholm. And they had, he, and also to Curacao, Curacao visas. So they, uh, they received, also they received, they, now they had the passports, but, but then they, um, then they received their, they didn't, you know, they didn't have a destination visa. My grandfather had, had hundreds upon hundreds of visas uh, sent. So this guy's, this guy's right. The, the guy who wrote this article, he was one of those people who received those visas. Um, hundreds of Curacao visas from a different Dutch, uh, Dutch uh, ambassador in, in Stockholm. And even though, you know, and, and, and well, then they had the visas, but they didn't have the entry visas because the Japanese guy left as well. Sujihara. So they sent it to, first they sent it, to, I think, to Moscow. To the, they sent their, their passports that they got, plus their visas that they got, and they sent them all in the mail to, uh, to Moscow, to the Japanese consulate in Moscow. Uh, and they, they said they sent it back and they denied them. But eventually they sent it to the Japanese consulate that was in a place called Chida, a small little town. And then they received their, the, the guy sent them back and then with uh, with the um, transit visas, so a lot of those people managed to escape using the same model, uh, but not with the same numbers, obviously. But uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable to think that my grandfather had a hand in directly saving the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people. It's pretty insane, despite the fact that at the time he was literally starving. He, he was living in poverty, unimaginable poverty. Uh, he and he was working. He he didn't. He wasn't sleeping for days upon uh, days on end, trying to. Uh, save as many as he possibly uh, could. So, let's go back to the Mir Yeshiva. The Mir Yeshiva, they have this workaround. We're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of students, faculty, families as well. They uh, boarded a Trans-Siberian train. This is a train that was built uh, in the 19th century uh, across all of Siberia, so from, uh, from um, Poland all the way to the Sea of Japan. Huh? Vladivostok, exactly. Uh, uh, that's 100% correct. Uh, 5,800 miles uh, in over 10 days. Just remarkable. Just traveling through. Some people had questionable passports. Some people had issues. They were praying and studying the entire time on, on the train. They no one to stop them. No one stopped them remarkably. People came in, but they didn't, never asked too many questions. They managed to land in, in Vladivostok, uh, which is the Russian port city on... on uh, all the way on, on you know, right, right, basically north of North Korea, a little bit north, north of South Korea, North Korea, you have Russia, Vladivostok, and then you have the Sea of Japan uh, to the island, islands of, of, of Japan. They arrived at Vladivostok, they took a ferry, 36-hour ferry, the details of this ferry is incredible. They took a ferry across to Japan, hundreds of, they made multiple rounds. Now the ferry is um, a roofless, no bathrooms, 36 hours. And the Sea of Japan is notorious for being one of the most rocky and uh, you know, just dangerous places uh, to travel. 
we're talking about they were they were facing uh, um, they were facing waves twenty to thirty feet high, and they're just exposed all on the uh, on, on the deck. You know, no one, no cabins, no nothing. Traveling with livestock as well. It's just uh, they were just transporting them, smashed like sardines on the on, on on the boat. Eventually, all of them made it. There was one of them that almost capsized. Uh, but eventually, the entire Shiva made it. They made the trek to Kobe, Japan. They landed first in the port of Tsurunga and traveled to Kobe, Japan. And, I was, and one of these people was my wife's grandfather. Um, pretty remarkable. It's insane. And they're in, J- in Japan. They talked about how beautiful Japan is. It was the springtime always. Whenever, whenever you're around, there was, it, was, it, was just, it was just beautiful. Um, now, at the time, like someone mentioned, it wasn't just the Miri Shiva. Miri Shiva had traveled in its entirety, but there were other members of other Shiva, so people that managed to have passports and used that same workaround, other refugees as well, had joined. Um, they got to they got to Kobe, Japan, and they, you know, there was, they found a, a place to settle down. They opened up Yeshiva. They just started learning, you know, just like the, like, like you know, like, like they never stopped, basically. Just continued, was just transplanted. Halfway across the world, and just they used to continue their studies. They um, uh, they had uh, Rabbi Kalmanovich in in New York was sending they sent them boxes upon boxes of Gemaras, but they had books to learn, and they opened up. They found the building there. They we'll talk about the different buildings that they had. This was in 1941. Uh, 1941, exactly. In 1941, early 1941. Now, a lot of them, obviously, at the time. Uh, they were um, early 94 before yeah. the Japanese attack. But we'll get to what happened at that time. Um, early 1941. A lot of them tried to um, tried to get visas to the United States. Some individuals did, United States or Canada, uh, but but most people didn't. So they were just, they were just uh, they were they were stuck. Um, they there they faced major halachic problems as to like when when where is the international dateline. So we know that the international dateline. Uh, Secular dateline is somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Thus, you know, if you're on one side of the dateline, you're the you know the day before. If you're if you're on the eastern side of the dateline, you're the day before. If you're on the western side of the dateline, you're the day after. So, like, you could be directly under the sun, and at one point of the dateline, it's Sunday, and the other, you know, if you move a little west, it's, it's Monday, Monday afternoon. There has to be a point in time where the day changes. Right where it's under the sun, it's always 12 noon. <laughs> so when does it change from Sunday to Monday? It, that's a dateline. But that doesn't help us for the halachic dateline. You know? So when uh, Japan, remember Japan is an island, so it's off the mainland. So huge debates as to whether or not it's considered part of the eastern, um, uh, or sorry, the western, like where mainland Asia would be, it's the same day as it is in Jerusalem. Or is it on, you know, is on the other side, and then, you know, like, you know, what do you do? Is it, is it in the United States? You know, is it huge debates? Eventually, but they actually, when they, during that time, during that year that they were in Kobe, Japan, they kept most, um, they kept two days of shops. Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, they, they kept. Now, problem was Yom Kippur. What do you do? You can't fast for 48 hours, or can you? There were a few students that, that fasted the entire way, all 48 hours, but they just stayed comatose in bed. <laughs> um, but this was a, a big problem. The, 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 there's books written on this particular subject, uh, as to, and sp- specifically talking about this, the entire Mirishiva, they sent telegrams to all the great rabbis. They got different answers, and, you know, they, you know, but eventually followed the opinion of Rabbi Karelitz. He was the number one halachic authority at the time, and, uh, and he answered the question, but some people just covered all bases and actually fasted for 48 hours. Pretty incredible. 
So they're in, uh, they're in Japan. They established the yeshiva there. Um, they've been there for five, six, seven months. Uh, and in, um, in August of 1941, uh, Japan, remember, Japan has occupied China as well. Uh, and uh, Japan used to be the big brother of that relationship. Sure, yeah. That has changed. Uh, and in, 19, in August of 1941, Japan was very eager to expel them from, uh, from the Japanese homeland or the mainland, and they sent them to Japanese-controlled Shanghai uh, in China. So Shanghai uh, is all the way in the the Shanghai the, the, is the most populated city in China right now, but it's uh, it's a, you know it's on the coast, so they all went from Kobe, and to them they were very depressed. You know they didn't want to leave it, uh, but in uh, we'll find out later that uh, all the non once the war started, once they attacked Pearl Harbor, only a few months later, uh, all non Japanese were put into internment camps and faced torture. It was really not a good place for them to be. Uh, so the fact that they were exiled, so to speak, to Shanghai was a very, very good thing for them uh, uh, in retrospect. Now, once the war began, they uh, their benefactors that they had in the United States, remember the rabbi who had sent them Gomorrahs, he was also, you remember the rabbi who sent them Gomorrahs in boxes, he had also had, was sending them money. So how, how did they exist? They went fundraising in Japan? I don't think so. They had uh, they had individuals who were raising money for them in in the United States. Now, once the war begins between between the United States and Japan, there's no you can't send mail from one to the other. They're at war. So what they would do is they would send all the money in massive suitcases to Sweden. Who's in Sweden? My grandfather. He would take off the packaging, take off the U.S. stickering. And re- repackage it and send it to, to, to Switzerland because Sweden was neutral. So he provided a, a crucial link between the uh, fundraising efforts on, on the United States and the yeshiva in, in, in Japan and, in, and, and later on in Shanghai. In fact, after the war, he provided a detailed accounting of every single shekel he got. No, he was living under starvation, literally starvation. Uh, he didn't take a single shekel for himself, despite the fact that he had boxes of U.S. dollars. I think it was U.S. dollars. I assume it was U.S. dollars. Yes, that's the uh, gold standard. Um, you know, and he provided a detailed accounting. In fact, like there were other people that were doing this as well, but none of them seemed to have had some of the money. You know, was lost to uh, shrinkage. Now, um, in Shanghai, so we'll, you know we'll, what they do in Shanghai. So there was a a, a, a enormously wealthy Iraqi Jew who in, 19, in the late 1920s had a dream from his dad who told him, you know, he was a estranged Jew, not so into Judaism. And his father told him, um, why don't you do something for the Jewish community? So he built an enormous, enormous, enormous shul in, in Shanghai. Like Shanghai was not necessarily the center of Jewish life, as we well know. But the yeshiva arrives in Shanghai, and what do they find? An enormous state-of-the-art building that uh, that could fit them. Well, in fact, I have a picture. I a picture from the internet, a very famous picture. Here's a picture. I'll pass it around here of the yeshiva. All 300 students uh, in that building that they had in Shanghai. Just an incredible picture. I should have made more copies of it. Um, now, and they managed to get stenders. It's also another story. They settled in Shanghai. They had this enormous yeshiva. They and just they just study and it's just you know incredible and they 
basically created for themselves this little community. Um, they had they established schools because like there were other refugees as well, boys' schools, girls' schools, uh, synagogues, uh, mikvahs, everything that you need. In fact, they they published they had published books on on Talmud. The yeshiva, it's yeshiva. What happens to yeshiva? They study Talmud. And what happens in great yeshiva? They study Talmud on a very high level. What happens in Talmud at a very high level? You write Torah insights. So there are books that were published in Shanghai with enormous, enormous amount of, of tremendous Torah insights that, that were written by the students of Shanghai. Now, in all those books, there's only one person who was published in Shanghai, who was actually not in Shanghai. And who's that? That's my grandfather. Here I have here, it's amazing. This is an actual copy of one of the books that were printed in Shanghai by the Mir Yeshiva. And the author, this is Shlomo Volbe, Shlomo Wolbe, says, Shvedia, in Sweden, Talmud Yeshiva, a student of Yeshiva Mir. Even though he was in Sweden, he heard that they were publishing, and he sent them, I'm, I'm joining, I assume he probably just tucked it into one of the, one of the suitcases of cash. I assume that's what he did. But they, you know, they published it even though he wasn't there. You know? And if you look, actually, if you, if you were to go through this book and see who are the people that are writing, once the war ended and Torah, the Torah institution was reestablished, who, who were the great Torah leaders that kind of resuscitated the religion? Many of them were in Shanghai. Many of the great rabbis were, 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 in, Shanghai, were in Shanghai, part of this uh, wonderful institution. And if you open these books, you'll see the, all their names. Because you know? the mirror was the, like I said, it's the Harvard of the yeshivas. And the Almighty is kind of like protecting the yeshiva, just uh, providing this cocoon that the yeshiva could just exist in its entirety uh, uh, in you know, on the safe or relatively safe shores of just six, 7,000 miles away from the uh, from the furnace that's consuming the Jewish people. Now, so uh, they, um, you know, there's details like as to, you know, Shanghai was very, very hot, very hot in the summer. And it was like a whole, over 100 degrees in the building. There's pictures of yeshiva students on the rooftop to try to get, uh, to try to get fresh air. You know, there were people sleeping on this, well, not, not Jew, not, not the yeshiva students, but like the, the stories about them walking up and down and see all the neighbors Shanghai would just sleep in the streets because that was the coolest place, you know, on the on the stones on the stone ground. That was the coolest place. These pictures, like everyone was just sweating so much because it was just so miserable. Whatever. Those are those are. Uh, we have some uh, some personal accountings of that story. By the way, many books were written on this subject. Very fascinating. Some of them even in English. Now, yes, go ahead. That building was built before the yeshiva people. This is yeah. This is built in 1927. It was sitting there. Was it sitting there? Empty? Well, there was, um, there was, it was, um, it was, I don't, I don't think it was empty, I just was, it wasn't being used. Um, there was a, a fellow by the name, I don't know his name, his name I had, he was uh, the local, the local Chabad rabbi, just like today we have Chabad rabbis everywhere. Uh, there was a, a local Chabad rabbi who, I guess it was his building, he, or he had control of the building and he allowed the issue okay. to join, uh, to, 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 to learn it, to take over the building. It was a very famous picture. And some of these pictures, by the way, they actually have everyone's names in it. Um, or as many people as they, could find, as they can identify. Like, you see, like, like, whoa, this person had a yeshiva. This person established a, an institution. Like, it's just incredible. Now, in 1943, uh, they uh, established a ghetto for the Jewish community in, in Shanghai. Um, 
So the yeshiva kind of had to leave this building, and they moved to a different building. Um, they were in an old factory that there was just falling apart. They had a hotel for a while. They had purchased a hotel with money, with U.S. money, uh, to to move the yeshiva to for a little bit. Um, they were in a different synagogue. And what's remarkable is that they seem to constantly be avoiding problems. Like, you know, um, one of the buildings uh, was hit by an American bomb. We you know the Americans were sending hundreds of bomber planes, such as bomber planes, senseless. Um, and they were in a building, and then um, they had moved to a different building, the entire yeshiva, and then two days later, a bomb had hit the, pre- the, the building that they were just in and completely destroyed it to rubble. You know, it's just like, and they managed to constantly be evading the problem, as if like, the Almighty presented this like bubble wrap around the yeshiva. Not a single yeshiva student was died in any way over those uh, seven years that they were in 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 in, in Japan and and in Shanghai. Uh, there was uh, blackouts. They were studying by candles, bombs. They that didn't matter. They kept on studying, kept on studying Torah. You know, the Talmud says that um, there always has to be a yeshiva. The Jewish people always have to have a yeshiva. They have to have that. That is the lifeblood of, 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 our, of, of our nation. And even, you know, during the darkest chapters of, of, of Jewish history, we find this, there's always one, at least a minimum of one institution that's just only dedicated to the craft of Torah study. That's, that's it. Um, there's only one yeshiva that survived uh, the war intact. Uh, they managed, you know, to just uh, without um, without losing any students, besides for the ones that left that had left the yeshiva or had uh, you know gone away from the from the group. They had um, no casualties amongst the group. They survived. No one, everything went well. You know, just and in, in nineteen forty seven, they all went on a on a U.S. Navy ship to uh, uh, to San Francisco. And the yeshiva was reestablished in New York. It was one of the major, major mere yeshiva in New York and in Israel. Uh, it was reestablished in, in, in Palestine. And it was actually in, in 1944 because one of the leaders of yeshiva was already there and had already established it. But it's the yeshiva that I studied in. It's the yeshiva that my grandfather would give speeches in, despite the fact that he was not part of the faculty there. But he was uh, presented uh, with the honor of, of speaking there every, you know, every week, every, every other week, actually. He would uh, alternate. He would give the Musr lecture. Um, because he was a student of Mir and had done so much to uh, to help the yeshiva, you know, through its darkest times, and was just a remarkable, remarkable scholar and influential Musser uh, personality. And um, and Chai's grandfather, um, we talked about, it. he went through this whole story. You know, he his family was decimated in Baranovich. He ended up in Mir in 1938. He got the passport. He got the he got the um, he got the uh, um, the Curacao visas. He got the Japanese transit visas. He got the Soviet transit visas. He went. He took the Trans Siberian train to Vladi, Vladi, Vladivostok. He took the ferry to to um, to Kobe. Well, not to Kobe. To the other place, but ended up in Kobe. He was in Shanghai. He was there, uh, and he moved to the United States. And he he passed away last week at the age of ninety six, and. Um, he was one of the last survivors of, of what's called the Altamir, the old Mir. He's there's only about you know two or three of them left, people that went through Shanghai, and you know, left. Uh, I have details here. He left 
seven children, uh, 59 grandchildren, and 30 great-grandchildren. Uh, that number, uh, the several on the way, uh, I know uh, for, for sure. Not us, but, you know. I was getting ready to say that. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, but uh, others as well. What a legacy. Yes. I um, have here. What did they get on a Navy ship? It seems like, uh, I don't know the details. I read that, that they got it on a, on a, on a Navy ship. Um, uh, so, yes, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Like, you know, it's a time in Jewish history that a lot of really terrible things happened. It's a time, you know, we look back and we, you know, we ask questions and it's, you know, very legitimate. But we see stories of, of tremendous miracles, just miracles in Providence that, you know, the Almighty was there for, you know, for, for Kai's grandfather, for my grandfather. And just a series of miracle after miracle, they just, they just survived. And, you know, I wouldn't be here. My kids wouldn't be here. My wife wouldn't be here. None of that would be here if not for, if, if, you know, if not for all these things falling exactly the way the Almighty intended them to fall. So um, I think it's an important uh, story for us. Uh, and I think it's also a, it's a lesson. You know, when we talk about Jewish history, Jewish history is Torah. But why is it Torah? It's Torah because it teaches us lessons. The word Torah means instruction. It's, it's a lesson. A lesson, lesson for us is on, on the individual scale and, on, of course, on a communal scale and a national scale as well that the Almighty is actively involved in our lives. He's interfering and he's uh, uh, supervising and guiding. And yes, we have questions. You know, why did the Almighty allow the Holocaust? That's a very good question. And it's not an easy answer. But it's also important for us to know that the Almighty was there. And for whatever reason, he chose to do what he did. And we could ask questions, and maybe that's a legitimate question to ask. Maybe there could be a discussion that we could have. But... For some individuals, the Imani just held their hand and just, just fended off all the missiles and fended off the Nazis and fended off the, uh, the Soviets and fended off the Japanese and fended off all the bombs and just protected them, guided them, you know. And, and, and you know, I feel like I'm a, I'm a living testament to, uh, to that, you know. And I, you talked about, there's more stories, you know. Like I, I was thinking, you know, if you were to expand this discussion a little bit, you know, how my grandfather met his wife. So he's in Stockholm. She had gone through all the camps. After the war, they had sent 20,000 women, 20,000 Jewish women survivors to Sweden. Sweden says we're, we're accepting 20,000 Jewish female refugees. Only female. Why? Because there was a problem. There was, enough, there was too many men in, in, in Sweden and they wanted to bring, have an influx of women. That, that was the reason why. To help balance that. My grandfather has spent the entire war trying to do as much as he can to save Jewry. He hears, he heard a rumor that there's a train full of Jewish girls, survivors of, of camps. What does he do? He packs his bags. He says, I'm going to go there, see what I can do. I'll make it up them. Right? He gets there, you know, and he, he sees just, as far as the night, not as far as I can see, but he sees just women everywhere, Jewish women. You know, and they're just, obviously, traumatized and scarred for life. And, but these are Jewish women from the best Jewish families. Now they're all, the whole families are destroyed. Everything's gone. Their life is in shambles. And they're here in Sweden. And with the intent of them marrying Swedish men and disappearing from the Jewish world. So what does he do? What does he do? I'm opening up a school for women. I'm opening a school for women. And 
this this is a story in its own right, and there's a book written about this. But my grandfather opened up a school for Jewish women in a place called Lidingo in, in Sweden. And there were hundreds and hundreds of girls in, in his school. Uh, and he, he, you know, he was single at the time. Uh, you know, he was uh, 30, 34 years old already at this time. Um, but, well, he wasn't 34 quite. He was, um, he was 31 years old. But he was already a very, you know, he was a, he was a very impressive persona. He had a big beard. He looked like a rabbi. He was, he was a rabbi, um, you know. And he, he, he said the story was is that he was there and he had brought a, um, a sandwich to eat. And he went and he washed his hands and said the blessing. And he turned around and he sees all the girls crying. And they, they had spent, you know, three, four, five years in, in concentration camps. And, he, and they see a, a rabbi washing his hands and making a blessing. And, like, it suddenly like brought them back to their lives with their families. He just shook them up and they all started crying. And he said, I'm opening up a school. And he opened up a school. And... Remarkably, he you know, saved hundreds of women. You know, one of those women was my grandmother. Was my grandmother? She was. She was there. She was actually an instructor. She was one of the teachers. But she was one of those women who ended up in ended up in Sweden. You know, that, that's how he. That's how he met. They actually didn't didn't get engaged until they had both gone to Israel in 1947. You know, but she was one from one of the most prestigious uh, rabbinical families in in Europe. Uh, but her her father was. Uh, was killed in 1944. He was actually burned in a in a hospital, burned alive. All her brother, not all her brothers, but some uh, three of her brothers were killed. You know, her sister was killed. This is my daughter Miriam is named after her sister, and you know she was there. She she had she wrote in her in her book. She wrote it. My grandmother also wrote a story about her survival. She wrote in the book that when she after the war she didn't even remember Ashrei. What's Ashrei? Ashrei is one of the most basic prayers. That, that we say uh, a minimum of twice a day. She couldn't even remember Ashrei. And this is what I'm saying. We're talking about a woman from the most prestigious rabbinical family, or one of the most, arguably one of the most prestigious families in Europe, you know, whose father was head, head of one of the yeshivas. And she, you know, thwar just, you know, just traumatized them to such a degree. She couldn't remember how to say Ashrei. You know, that's what she said. But, you know, eventually they, you know, through this school, you know, she, they rehabilitated hundreds of women. Remarkable stories. That's how that's my grandparents met. How did my parents meet? Uh, my father was born in Israel. My mother was born in Brooklyn. Just, there seems to be a lot of space in between. <laughs> you know, they happen to have met. You know, and I'm thinking, like, if you think about, I think personally, I'm just talking to you guys personally, my own life. Like, how many things have to go right for me to even exist? It's just because, and that's Jewish history. That's what we're supposed to do when we study Jewish history. It's it, it, it's 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 working backwards to see how God arranges things and how makes people meet and makes things happen, and on a communal scale, but on, even on a personal scale, right? watching over us, supervising us. When we talked about God. We talked about what it means to believe in the Jewish God means to believe in a Creator, Sustainer, and Supervisor. Supervisor. That last one is what we do when we study Jewish history. When we study Jewish history, it's an exercise in faith in God. Which element? God doing what? God supervising the Jewish people. Is it a rosy story? Absolutely not. But every element, every time in Jewish history, we see a plan. We see how it's part of a big picture. When you have the gift of, of retrospect, you know, when the when the Jews were exiled um, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, right? For they were the, the ten thousand of the best and brightest of the Jews were taken and brought to exile in Babylon. The 
Jewish community in Israel was bereft of their leadership. Well, the Talmud points out that this is God pre- pre- preparing the antidote before the, before the sickness. This is God saying, I'm going to set up the Jewish community of Babylon before the mass exile of the entire nation to Babylon. Thus, when everyone, the temple's destroyed, everyone is sent on uh, uh, onto uh, east towards Babylon, they get there, well, the 10,000 10, people that were exiled 10 years prior had already established a framework that the Jewish people could continue. That's how we study Jewish history. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's a very personal story for me, but I think it's an insight on, onto, onto, onto Jewish uh, history at large, that the Almighty is watching over us. Why he does what he does is something that we might not necessarily always have the answer for. But we do find remarkable, remarkable stories, even in the most darkest times, darkest chapters of Jewish history, we find a story like this, where defying all odds, you know, incredible heroism uh, and incredible miracles that ensure the survival of an entire yeshiva intact, that, you know, that, that, that continued studying, continued uninterrupted, and continues to this day. I think it's a remarkable story, and, and I think it... Uh, has a uh, an important an important uh, it should have an important part in in our uh, discussion of Jewish history. I want to just read just to conclude, if I can. We have a hard hard deadline. No, no, no. Keep going. Um, this is an introduction to a book called Mitzvah Hatalat Torah, uh, which is translated in English, which means Operation uh, Saving the Torah. Which is a book talked about the, the story of, of the Mir Yeshiva. And they asked my grandfather, uh, quite appropriately, to write the introduction forward. This is a, a translation of what he wrote um, A special blessing of Hatova Hametiv. There's a blessing uh, where we say about God God is good and God does good, God's benevolent. Uh, must be recited for the miracles that the Almighty performed for us during the war. We were saved in 1941 together with the Holy Yeshiva from the Valley of Death in Lithuania and Russia and removed to places of safety. This salvation was comprised of an endless chain of open and hidden miracles that is beyond comprehension. We saw with our eyes, we experienced the divine fulfillment of the promise that Torah will not be forgotten from the Jewish people. Those who clung to the Yeshiva in its journeys during this time were saved together with it. In this exile of the Yeshiva, in these foreign lands, suffering from anxiety and deprivation, the students unseasonally dedicated themselves to their study and thus merited to become the vanguard to spread Torah, raising the honor of Torah and fear of heaven in Israel and the United States. As we mentioned, the students of this remarkable journey are the ones that are going to, re- uh, or are, are some of the people that are going to take very important roles in rebuilding Torah after the Holocaust. In them is the fulfillment of the verse in Genesis and the remaining camp will survive. The most stunning miracle, greater than all of the other miracles that we experience, and yet it cannot be adequately described, is how each student, de- uh, deprivation, separation, and loss of family notwithstanding, immerse himself in Torah study, prayer, and Musar each day with tremendous dedication. So that's that. I think it's a, a remarkable story, and one that's probably not as well known, you know, especially in the you know, the bigger picture, you talk about the Holocaust, it's just disaster after disaster, you know. But we have this, this, this remarkable story, and I think it's, it's, it's an important story. This is the story of God preventing the Jewish people from total annihilation, you know. After the war, if you were to make a prediction, 
All these yeshivas were destroyed. It was an entire network. Hundreds of yeshivas in, in Europe. They're all gone. They're all gone. There's a few hundred students left. That's it. That's it. You know, we talked about uh, Ben Gurion and his and his um, and his agreement to allow the yeshiva students to have uh, to have uh, to, to you know to avoid our army service. Yeah, we, that, that was when we talked about Zionism and religion, kind of the tension that existed. At that time, the sentiment was that the era of yeshiva students, the idea of people dedicating their lives to the teaching, to the spreading of Torah, to the study of Torah, to the intense dedication to the craft that has been the pastime of the people for millennia, that was over. Right? All the yeshivas were gone. Every single one of them, they're gone. The students, they're gone. The faculty, they're gone. Poland is burning. Lithuania is destroyed. Everything's gone. So what we, he said, okay, 400 students, that's all that's left. That'll, that'll die out in, you know, within a couple of decades. What happened? What, what was the Almighty doing? The Almighty takes this one yeshiva. Right? The, 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 you know, the, perhaps the most remarkable one, or one of the most remarkable yeshivas, and just protects it from everything. Takes it across the entire world. It continues existing throughout the war. After the war, Torah flourishes. Torah flourishes in large part due to these students themselves and the institutions that they headed after the war. So, that's that's the story. Uh, it's remarkable, and, and yeah. I think uh, you know it's it's a special merit that I have and my wife have that we kind of our our, our parents, uh, our grandparents uh, played a very important role, or uh, they they were there. They, these are the people that we're talking about. What year did they leave? 19, well, some people left earlier, but the entire yeshiva left in uh, 1947. Uh, they weren't allowed to get... Uh, Any of them still left over there? No. I heard there were some. Oh, maybe, yeah, not from the yeshiva, I don't think. Not from oh, the yeshiva. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there are some Jews there. Uh, there were some Jews there even before that. Like I said, there was a shul there. But, uh, you know, but obviously the numbers uh, swelled uh, once the, all the refugees and yeshiva students came. Uh, right now. I don't know. I'm sure there are some some Jews there Here's as well. Question: The Dutch representative and the Japanese representative. Yes. Has the state of Israel ever recognized their service? The state of Israel, I think, has labeled them as uh, as righteous of the nations. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, they came to Israel. They were honored. Well, one of them, one of them, the Dutch representative, he was very mum about it. He didn't talk about it. Uh, the other one. Um, you made a book written about them, and yeah, they were both honored by Yad Vashem, and they have, uh, you know, they both have Wikipedia pages. You can read more detail. Yeah, about them. Was working through them. Oh yeah, and it's yes, absolutely. You know, you see this, but it, it all came together. Passports and all the visas all just uh, converged uh, uh, all at the same time, together with the Malt. I mean, it's ironically the Malta Ribbentrop Pact would have would be very very crucial to save the Jewish people. You know. Because that opened the door for that temporary little time period for for the Jews to have, um, or for Lithuania to have sovereignty over Vilna and to, to be independent, and that's where they all came to. That's where they all found uh, all the all the visas and, and transport visas and entry visas, etc. No one actually made it to Curacao, by the way. <laughs> it looked like when they hit a brick wall, there's no place to go. Yeah, the hole opened up. That's right, and it's obscure. Yeah, exactly, and and you know, and that and that's that's what we find in Jewish history. It's like if at each one of these particular miracles on their own merit, you say, well, it's you know, it's it's it, it can be coincidence. Each one on their own. Well, maybe there was one 
really nice Dutch ambassador who happened to be there and happen, you know. But then when you just add one after another, you basically see the Almighty's handiwork. You know, that's our job when we study history to try to see how the Almighty is, you know, manipulating and interfering and 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 guiding, orchestrated. Orchestrated. Thank you. Thank you. We had a Dutch contrarian business. That's right. Yes. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. We'll see you all next week. Oh, yeah. And next time we talk about Jewish history, it most likely will be going back in time. <laughs> How do we look at these stories? Yeah. Um, like this. I, if you want, here, I have a copy here. Uh, this is one individual's account. Uh, I found it online. I can email it to you guys if you want. Did, did um, you email me I where email, I can get it? No, I can do that. Yeah, I'll email it to, to Dan and we'll hold some of it out. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank for you. That thank story. you so much. Thank you. <laughs>